Let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. After several weeks, we finally worked our way through the first seven verses dealing with the relationship between husbands and wives. I hope it was uh, educational for you. I hope it was beneficial. As we all know, any relationship requires work and effort, starting with our relationship with God, right? I think sometimes people miss that point. You know, we tend to look at spiritual things, God, Jesus, as kind of magical, you know, kind of like the wonderful world of Disney or something. And that you just kind of, as once you become a Christian, you just kind of float through life. You know, the angels are there, the Holy Spirit's there, and it's just kind of like a wonderful fairy tale. How many of you have found that to be true of the Christian life? <laughs> it is the best life. It's the only real life. But it's not easy. But again, that's another common misconception, especially the world we live in today, that if it's something is good, it should be easy. And you even hear Christians say that sometimes. Well, I'm having a real hard time here. It must not be God. God's closing the doors. Well, sometimes that's true. But more often than not, it's really a matter of spiritual warfare. Paul talks about the fact that we, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We tend to view things on the earthly level, the earthly plane. We tend to see other people as either friends or enemies. I mean, there's a certain level at which that's true. But the real enemy is the devil. And Paul says we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in the heavenly realms. Ultimately, the battles that we face in this life at their very root, at their core, are spiritual. Therefore, to be successful in our Christian life, and our Christian walk, we have to learn how to use the spiritual weapons, right? And the most powerful weapon we have, the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, and the power of prayer that Randy talked about earlier. At any rate, relationships, and of course the most important relationship other than our relationship with God is our relationship with our spouse. So we spent several weeks on that. But now Paul, uh, or Peter rather, uh, the first word here, verse 8, Finally, so he's going to wrap up this section on submission to authority, relationships. Let's read verses 8 through 12. Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another, love as brothers, be tenderhearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling. One translation says insult for insult, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do 
evil. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time that we have to spend together today in your word. Lord, this is a very rich passage. We ask you to open up our hearts and minds that we might hear from you today, that we might see what you want us to see, that we might learn what you want us to learn, and that we might continue to grow and become stronger and more mature in our Christian faith and our walk with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So finally, he says, and I like the New American Standard Bible says it like this, to sum up, to sum up. Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another, love as brothers, be tenderhearted, be courteous. New American Standard, to sum up, let all be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. So again, Paul's taking us through a whole uh, series here, chapters 2 and 3. After discussing submission to, first of all, governmental authorities. Remember? That's not always easy, but we are called upon as believers to obey the laws of the land. And again, we've talked many times about the exceptions to that. Remember the apostles when they stood before the Sanhedrin and the Sanhedrin rebuked them, commanded them to no longer preach about Jesus, no longer to say the name of Jesus, to teach in the name of Jesus. And they said, sorry guys, but we have to obey God rather than men. But as long as the laws do not contradict the word of God, as long as they are not immoral, illegal, of course, if the government dictates the law, then it's legal. But anything that's not immoral, illegal, or unbiblical, we are to submit to. So we had the governmental authorities. Then we had uh, submitting to masters. We know that slavery was commonly practiced in biblical times. And it's a hot-button topic today. It's still being practiced in many parts of the world, which is a sad thing. But it's kind of been a part of the fallen human condition from the beginning of time where one man or one group of men enslaves another. It's wrong, but it's part of what happens when man falls, when man is fallen, when man is not redeemed, when he's living in a, living in a fallen state. But you know, there are many different ways of enslaving people. I'm sure you could find a lot of people today in our nation as well as especially in some of these third world countries where these people work in what they call sweatshops where they work long hours for very little pay but there's a, there are a lot of people that would say if you ask them well yeah I kind of feel like a slave I'm expected to work 12 hours a day you know I hardly get any breaks uh, so on and so forth so we all should be able to relate to that in one fashion or another the idea that uh, we have some type of a master that we are to be submissive to, our boss, you know, our employer, and so forth. And so we dealt with that. Governmental authorities, masters. And then we dealt with husbands and wives. Finally, finally, after all of this, Peter now gives us the bottom line. And what he's communicating here is mutual submission by all believers to one another. Mutual 
submission. 1 Peter 5.5 5. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Now, this verse is significant in that I've seen a real change in my lifetime. Even though I was part of the, you know, that uh, hippie generation, if you will, uh, the, the baby boomers, the Pepsi generation, you know, the sex, drugs, and rock and roll group, you know, where we really saw this radical transformation in American society and culture after World War II. We were, st- those of us in that age group were still brought up under some, somewhat, uh, under the old system where there was still a basic understanding of authority and respect, uh, for older people. That's kind of changed. And sadly, I see it manifested big time even in the church. Now, when I first came back to the Lord, I was saved as a young boy, but I came back to the Lord at 17 years of age. And that was when the Jesus movement was happening in Southern California, then it spread all over the world. But what I saw happening was people coming together, young, old, long hairs, you know, love song. Chuck Gerard wrote a song about that called Little Country Church. Long hairs, short hairs, some coats and ties. People finally coming around, looking past the hair and straight into the eyes. And there was a, there was a, a, a unity and a harmony in the church in the, in the early seventies that transcended age, gender, ethnicity that, that is missing today in the church. What I'm finding a lot of times is now, that it seems like, and I'm not knocking the younger people, we might have a few here today, (laughs) hopefully we have a few, but as I've traveled around the country going to different conferences, visiting different church groups and so forth, I've seen a common denominator that in so many of those meetings, we're not finding very many young people, whether it's a prophecy conference. In fact, I just came back from the International Calvary Chapel Pastors Conference in California. Pastor Ed went. Pastor Carl went. We had, it was a wonderful conference. Fantastic. And again, as I've already done, I want to continue to bring you very encouraging reports about the direction that the Calvary Chapel movement is taking. All these men who, first generation Calvary Chapel pastors who were sent out by Pastor Chuck and then in turn planted many other churches Raul Reese, Mike McIntosh, Sandy Adams down in Stone Mountain, Georgia, so many others. Don McClure, they're staying the course. In fact, it's interesting, my friend Pastor John Higgins in uh, Tempe, Arizona, who was with Pastor Chuck way back in the early days, mid-60s, one of the first. And uh, from the very beginning, after Chuck's passing, John has constantly held firm on staying the course, following the old path, as it talks about in Jeremiah chapter 6. Because that old path was established by God. The straight and narrow path. And the path that was established by Pastor Chuck to faithfully, consistently teach through the Scriptures, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. And as you know, there was kind of a schism that began to develop. But... That has become a very small group. And what we see is the vast majority of Calvary chapels are now staying the course. 
And the title of our conference was Old Paths. What was the other part? Good good ways. Old paths and good ways. But Pastor John Higgins was using these terms three, four years ago. He was at the head of the pack and trying to direct us in the right direction. And that's exactly what's happening. So we know that God is still in control. The Holy Spirit is moving in Calvary Chapel. I want you to be encouraged by that. Are you? Good. But my point was this. I forget who it was, but one of the speakers, one of the pastors, asked everyone under 35 to raise their hands. There weren't that many. One of the things they talked about is how people are saying, Calvary Chapel is getting gray. Not me yet. And I don't dye my, I don't dye my hair. As God is my witness. Calvary Chapel is getting gray. A lot of the pastors are older. Because this movement began in the 60s. And so again we see this shift. This is so important. This is something we all need to pray about. Encourage young people that there is wisdom to be gained from their elders. Because we're seeing a real separation in the church today. And these, these youthful movements are great. But if they're not integrating into the body of Christ and melding with all age groups, then I think we have a problem. You younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud. And so it goes both ways. Yes, the younger people should be submissive. Submit yourselves to your elders. But the elders should not be arrogant or prideful either. They should be humble. And be willing to admit when they're wrong. Jesus set the example, didn't he? He got out on his hands and knees, took off his outer garment, washed his disciples' feet. God resists the proud. We talked earlier about how, well, there's too many obstacles. It must not be God. If God was in it, it should be easy. That's not really biblical. We will face obstacles in seeking to serve God. But there is another possible option, and that is if you're walking in pride... God will resist you. So if you're feeling that resistance, you need to pray. You need to seek the Lord. What's going on here? Is this spiritual warfare? Am I in pride? Do I need to humble myself? Because God does resist the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Oftentimes people are afraid to admit their shortcomings, their failures, their faults. But what we should be afraid of is not admitting our failures and our shortcomings and our faults. Because God resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Ephesians 5.21 Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. One of the biggest struggles that I have experienced in almost, it'll be 29 years of pastoring this church in January. That wasn't being prideful. But it's a blessing that God has enabled me to hang in there for this long. But one of the biggest struggles that I've experienced and witnessed in almost 29 years of pastoring, and before that I was an assistant pastor at a couple other churches, but is that people having this desperate need to be right. 
no matter what harm it may do to the other person, they're so committed and dedicated to proving that they're right and you're wrong. That's not the Christian way. We're to submit to one another. We're to be peacemakers. And that has been one of the most heartbreaking things in the church, in the ministry, is people who don't care who they hurt or what kind of damage they do as long as they can prove they're right and you're wrong. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Sometimes that means even if you are right. Most of the time you're probably not. If you've got that kind of an attitude, you're probably not. But guess what? Even if you are right, there's going to be times when God calls upon you to back down, to submit, to give in, to be a peacemaker. So what we see here is that this submission thing which started with governmental authorities, slaves to masters, wives to husbands, and in another sense, husbands to wives. It carries over into basically every relationship we have, first and foremost to God. And I would propose to you that if you're someone who's really struggling with submitting to earthly authority in your life, you're probably not submitting to God's authority either. They really go hand in hand. So we go on here. He says, be of one mind. Uh, one translation says, live in harmony. The uh, New American Standard Bible said, let all be harmonious. Uh, the Greek word is homophronous. It could be translated like-minded. It means a combination of parts into a pleasing or orderly whole. A combination of parts into a pleasing or orderly whole. I have a big can, big coffee can or some kind of can, nut can, something, and I just dump all these screws and nails and nuts and bolts and every kind of thing you can think of. It's not very harmonious. So if I'm trying to find something that I, I have to dump it all out, spread it all out, look for what I need, then put it all... You know, there's probably a better way but I'm not really that kind of a person. So that's an example of the opposite of harmonious. You know, we have everything, combination of parts into a pleasing or orderly whole. Johnny Cash has that old song about how he worked at the, at the, at the car plant, the Cadillac plant, and, and he was, one at a time, he would steal a part. You ever heard that? I got a 59, you know, a Cadillac, and he's got this Cadillac that's made out of parts from a car over a 20-year period, you know. But, you know, you could have all these beautiful parts laying in a warehouse, but if they're not assembled into something functional, useful, they're not harmonious. Now, some Bible commentators, Bible teachers, include harmony as part of this list and therefore they come up with five qualities. But I tend to believe, I'm in the camp, that it's kind of like um, the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, and so forth. I'm in the camp that believes that the fruit of the Spirit is love, agape, and that those other words are descriptive of various aspects of agape. Joy, peace, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, 
self-control. Those are all aspects of agape love. I see the same thing here. I believe the next four words are descriptive of what it looks like when the body of Christ is harmonious. So four qualities that promote harmony. Harmony, that's what we'll look at here. One, he says, having compassion or, as the New American Standard Bible says, sympathetic. Having compassion or be sympathetic. Sympathy means as entering into or the ability to enter into another person's mental state, feelings, emotions, etc. Compassion or sympathetic. Let me give you an example. You, uh, you see somebody at church. They seem to be kind of off-putting, not friendly. You know, maybe they don't acknowledge you as they walk by. You try to say hi, and you get mad. You say, what's their trip, man? They're ignoring me. What's the deal? But compassion and sympathy would say, gee, I wonder maybe they're going through something today. Some, maybe something's bothering. Maybe something happened at home. Something happened at work. I need to pray for them. See how that works? Trying to tap into the other person's mental state, their feelings, their emotions, instead of being quick to be offended and taking it personally, stop and think what they might be going through. And in other cases, they will actually share with you what they're going through. And then with God's Spirit working in us, we're able then to identify with them, pray for them, encourage them, minister to them. It basically boils down to taking the time, making the effort to understand what your brother or sister are going through. I'd say at any given point in time, we're probably all going through something. Wouldn't you agree? It's just part of life. You know, there's so many issues we deal with, whether it's family-related, work-related, church-related. We're always going through something. One person put it like this. Instead of putting other persons in their place, try putting yourself in their place. You see? Hey man, you need to shape up. Putting them in their place. No, wait a minute. Let me put myself in their place and try to understand what they're going through. Okay, first of all, have compassion or be sympathetic. That's one characteristic that promotes harmony in the body of Christ, in your family at home, wherever you are. Secondly, love as brothers. Now, you might think, oh, that must be agape, right? No. We are called to agape one another. We all know that that's unconditional love, the kind of love that Christ displayed on the cross, right? But here, it's actually phileo, where we get the word Philadelphia, formerly the city of brotherly love. <laughs> phileo, which means warm, tender feelings of affection. Here, it's phileo, the brothers. And you probably heard some Christians say this. Well, I know the Bible says I have to love them, but I don't have to like them. You may have said that yourself. I'm so, I hate to burst your bubble. That's not true. Yes, the Bible says we are to love one another. It's a command. Agape one another. As Christ also loved us. 
But it doesn't stop there. So that statement, I know I have to love them, but I don't have to like them, you can strike that right now. Because we're told here that we're to like each other. Phileo, brotherly love. We're not only to agape one another, God actually expects us to have warm, tender feelings of affection for each other as well. Well, that's going to be pretty rough, I'm going to tell you. Well, that's why you've got the Word of God, you've got prayer, you've got the Holy Spirit. What did I say at the beginning? Relationships take work, right? And in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul tells us we're to show preferential treatment to the less comely, less desirable members of the body of Christ. I know there are people who avoid certain other people in church for whatever reason. And some people will even leave a church because there's somebody there that just bugs them. That's not what God had in mind. The Bible says, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. If we only gravitate towards people that make us comfortable, people, you know, we like their looks, we like the way they talk, we have the same interests, we like the same football team, whatever. Of course, there's not very many people left who even like football, especially at the NFL level these days, the way things are going. God is systematically tearing down all of our idols. Do you know that? Hollywood, NFL, you name it. It's been a nice run, but it's time to worship God and Him only. Okay, number three. Be tender-hearted or kind-hearted. This means that you are easily moved to love, pity, or sorrow. Tender-hearted. When you're hard-hearted, nothing seems to phase you. But when you're tender, keeping that heart tender, easily moved to love, pity, or sorrow. Which again, obviously makes it much easier for us to have compassion. To identify with people in their troubles. 1 Corinthians 12, 25-26 that there should be no schism, no division. Again, that's the opposite of harmony. There should be no schism in the body but that the members should have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. Not avoiding people with problems. I don't want to get involved in that. When one member suffers, they all suffer. Boy, I tell you, when that's going on in the church, you've got a church. You've got a real body of Christ that is connected and is aware. It's, it's feeling the hurts and the needs of others within the church. Or if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it instead of getting jealous. Oh, how come he got so blessed? And I know what he's about. What, you know, I should have been the one getting the blessing. You know? Again, that's not promoting harmony. We should rejoice when someone is honored, when someone's blessed. How come he gets to lead this or teach that or do this? I'm more qualified than he is or she is. No, we rejoice. That's, that's harmony. That's unity. We rejoice with those 
who are blessed, who are honored, and we um, feel for, we suffer with those who suffer. Erwin Lutzer said, Christianity demands a level of caring that transcends human inclinations. So if you were just sitting here thinking, man, that's a tall order. Well, Erwin Lutzer says, yeah, it transcends human inclinations. We are not naturally, normally inclined to be like this. Our natural, normal inclination is to be selfish, is it not? And you see, I don't know if you've thought about this before. Maybe you've heard me say it before. All sin is rooted and grounded in selfishness. If you choose to commit adultery, that's selfish. You're putting your wants, your needs, your desires before that of your spouse or the other person. Same thing with fornication. Oh, but we love each other. If you really love someone, you don't violate them in that manner. You honor them, you respect them, and you say, you know what? If it's God's will that we're married, we'll wait until we're married. And if it's not God's will for us to be married, we certainly shouldn't be doing that. It's selfish. Whatever it is, if it's fornication, if it's drug abuse, if it's alcoholism, again, that's selfish because you're destroying the lives of people around you when you indulge in that stuff. Oh, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else. Do you know there's nothing you can do in this life that doesn't affect somebody else? All sin is rooted and grounded in selfishness. So let's just be honest. Again, we talked about that earlier. The most dangerous thing is to not be honest. When you're honest, God can help you. God can heal you. God can deliver you. That's why it says in James chapter 5, confess your sins one to another that you might be healed. The devil wants to keep things hidden, keep them in the dark. But when they're brought to the light, God can deal with it. God can change you. God can heal you. All right, number four, the last one. Be courteous. Or interestingly, one translation says humble. It ties being courteous and being humble together. Again, as we talked about earlier, the biggest barrier to every relationship we have, including our relationship with God, is pride. I call it the Burger King believer. Have it your way. And nowadays, if they don't give it to you the way that you want it, they attack you. Have you seen all the crazy things with Burger King, McDonald's, where these people get mad and start throwing French fries and jump over the counter and start punching people? Pretty scary. We're living in the age of insanity, which is exactly what the Bible said would happen at the end of time, the end of days. The Burger King believer. Yeah, I'm a Christian, but I'm going to have it my way. You're going to have a rough ride, brother. And then there's the Frank Sinatra Christian. You know, I did it my way. Burger King, going to have it my way. Frank Sinatra believer, I did it my way. Yes, you did. And what a mess you made. Courteous, humble. They go hand in hand. All right, let's move on to verse 9. This is really big too. Not returning 
evil for evil or reviling for reviling. And this really, this verse echoes the words of Christ in Luke 6, 27 and 28. I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. And pray for those who spitefully use you. Again, the natural, normal inclination, and sadly, it does happen between Christians. Returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling. There's different phrases that we use. Tit for tat. Fight fire with fire. And then there's this great twisting of the Bible scripture. Do unto others before they do unto you. You heard that one? But according to God's word, it's not enough to simply withhold a vengeful response. We're to bless those who mistreat us. On the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. Matthew 5.39, Jesus says, I tell you not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. Again, we just mentioned Erwin Lutzer. Christianity demands a level of caring that transcends human inclinations. There's not a one of us in this room that can do what we're called to do and be what we're called to be apart from the power of the Holy Spirit working in us and the guiding light of God's Word. We need that Word constantly shining the light into our hearts and minds because we're constantly being barraged with all the lies of the enemy through this world system. On the contrary, in direct contrast to tit for tat or fire with fire, rather than evil for evil or reviling for reviling, we are to be, give, bring a blessing. Eulogontes is the Greek word. We get our English word eulogy. And it means to speak well of someone. Eulogontes, blessing. And words are powerful. That's why at the beginning I said I thanked Randy for his kind words. We know that words are powerful. James deals with this in his book, The Power of the Tongue, either to do good or to do evil. Words have meaning. Don't return evil for evil, insult for insult, but instead a blessing. Again, it needs to be sincere. It needs to be from the heart. Speaking well of someone. You see, it's, the Bible teaches us, folks, the way we conquer hate is by not fighting fire with fire, not giving tit for tat, not giving evil for evil or insult for insult, but by showing love. And Jesus said that in the last days, because of the increase of lawlessness or wickedness, the love of most would grow cold. We're facing perhaps a greater challenge than any other generation before us as believers to not allow all the crazy stuff going on in the world to cause our love to grow cold. Anybody here seeing that as a challenge today? I am. i got to be honest with you. It's a struggle. 
That's why we need studies like this. We conquer hate by showing love. The best way to meet the slanderer and the persecutor is with patience and grace and let God do the rest. Usually when we try to fix it, we just make it worse. Blessing those who curse us is part of our calling in Christ. It's not optional. This is who we are to be. The result is that we inherit a blessing. That's a pretty good deal. And we shouldn't be doing this just, oh man, if I do this, I'm going to get blessed. All right, cool. Then it becomes all about you again. But just to realize and recognize that one of the big perks is that when we really genuinely seek to be the person that God wants us to be and do what He wants us to do because we love Him and we're called to be like Him, there are blessings in it for us. We receive a blessing. And it ties in with that universal law we read about in Galatians chapter 6 of reaping and sowing and reaping. The Bible clearly teaches we reap what we sow. If we're sowing seeds, returning evil for evil, insult for insult, not being humble, not being courteous, not being sympathetic, we're planting a certain type of seed and will only reap a certain type of a harvest. You can't hope. You can't take a bag of weed seed and spread it all over your yard and hope to come up with a yard like a golf course. Right? You reap what you sow. Guess what? As God's kids, He wants us to be blessed. But this is an important point. Make note of this. There are no shortcuts. A lot of people want the blessings, but they want to take the shortcuts. There are no shortcuts. Verses 10 through 12, these last three verses, are a quotation of Psalms 34, 12 through 16. Beginning in verse 10, For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Now, the question that immediately popped into my mind, I thought about this, He who would love life. How many people, including some here today, can say that they truly love life? There was an expression that was floating around. It's probably still out there somewhere. Life, I'll use the nicer word, stinks, and then you die. You ever heard that one? Life stinks and then you die. Or there's another word they can use there. How many people truly love life? Because Peter says, quoting from Psalms, he who would love life. How many of you would love life? You would like to. You'd like to live your life that way where you're really loving life. And those who say they love life because they're indulging all the desires of the flesh They're lying to you and they're lying to themselves. He who would love life. And you know what? God wants us to love life. It's sad that so many people have this misconception about God that He just wants to bum everybody out 
bum their trip, you know, squash them, make their lives miserable. It's just the opposite. John 10.10, the thief does not come. The thief, by the way, is the devil. The thief does not come except to steal, rip you off of everything, and to kill and to destroy. He'd like to kill you physically. The sooner the better. And then he wants to destroy your soul in hell. I, Jesus says, have come that they may have life and they may have it more abundantly. So no matter how abundant your life may or may not be or how abundant you may perceive it to be or not be, Jesus said, I came to make it more abundant. So you really have two options. If you tie in with Jesus, you're on the right path to having a more abundant life or as the NIV says, to the full. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. There is absolutely no possible way that any human being can have true fullness of life apart from Christ. That's just a fact. You don't have to believe it. You don't have to agree with it. But it is a fact. More abundantly or to the full. So you can tie in with the enemy. In fact, when you're born, you're already tied into him. We're born in sin. We're born under the control, influence of the enemy, Satan, the prince of this world. And when we yield our lives to Christ, when we confess our sins, we repent, and we acknowledge Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, and the Spirit of God comes to live inside of us, it's a whole new ballgame. We're no longer subject to being ripped off, to being killed, to being destroyed by the devil but we now have the opportunity and the option for more abundant life, for fullness of life. And to see good days. Again, we talked about the fact earlier, it's not easy following God. There are many challenges, but I would guarantee you there are more good days than bad in Christ. There are more good days than bad days as opposed to living in the world apart from Christ. There's a whole lot more bad days. And the worst is yet to come. In order to be a lover of life and to see good days. And again, that's another question that someone might ask. When's the last time you had a good day, mate? When's the last time you had a good day? Smiley face. Have a good day. Right? What is he telling us? We have to learn to control our tongues. Let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. So you thought your good day depended on those around you. And when you don't have a good day, you're looking for somebody to blame, right? <laughs> yeah, I know you are. Blame your husband, blame your wife, blame your boss, blame your dog. Poor dog. He's just a critter. Just a lowly animal. Those who would love life. See, you go around spewing garbage all the time. You're not going to love life. Right? Remember Ebenezer Scrooge? We're coming up pretty soon on our Christmas season. He didn't love life. And all that came out of his mouth was bad stuff. 
But then he saw the light. And it changed his entire outlook, changed his speech, everything about him. If you would love life and see good days, refrain your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Our natural tendency is to lash out at the one that we perceive to be the offender, to slice and dice with our tongues, right? I mentioned James earlier, James 1.26. If anyone among you thinks he's religious, and when James uses the, the word religion, he means it in the truest sense of the word. I know we tend to think of us, oh, we don't want to identify with that word religious. We're not religious. We just love God. We have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. But when James uses it, he uses it in the proper context. If anyone among you thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. According to James, who is speaking under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, so these are actually God's words to us, those who accuse, criticize, gossip, slander, backbite, and call themselves believers are deceived. I didn't say it. God did. He deceives his own heart and this one's religion is useless or ineffective. Now, we've got to put some grace in here because God, above all, is a God of grace. Unmerited favor, love, grace, mercy, forgiveness. Anyone can stumble in this area. We've all done it. We've all been guilty. We've all come short of the glory of God. But if you practice a lifestyle of hurtful, damaging speech, you really should reevaluate, reexamine your standing with God. James 3 2. We all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, also able, able also to bridle the whole body. So again, whenever we're talking about sin in the life of a believer, which ideally we know shouldn't be there, but unfortunately it still is. It's the difference between stumbling, getting, picking yourself up with God's help, confessing, repenting, moving on, versus the person who knowingly, willingly, habitually practices a lifestyle of sin. It's very difficult to justify and to reconcile that with calling someone a true, born-again follower of Christ. And again, that's not to condemn or beat anybody up, because all you got to do is come to Jesus. Confess your sins. Repent. Turn and go the other way. Turn from sin and follow God. He talks about perfect. We know what that means. Mature. We will not be totally perfect till we see the perfect one face to face and he perfects us. But in the meantime, we can grow in our maturity, our spiritual maturity. And one of the most reliable signs of Christian maturity or just maturity in general even is the ability to control the tongue. Verse 11. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Who's him here? The one who would love life and see good days. The one who is about the business of controlling his 
or her tongue. Let him turn away from evil. Again, we just talked about it. To repent means to turn and go the other way, to turn from sin and towards God. Do you want to love life? Do you want to see good days? Then you need to turn from evil. You need to repent and turn toward God. And in the context of this passage, the evil Peter is speaking of is not being compassionate, not being sympathetic, not being humble, and so forth. These qualities that we've looked at today. So turn from evil and do good. And again, when we read in the Scriptures about doing good, please don't come under the misconception that that's how you get saved. I just heard it again the other day. Someone was telling me about a family member or a friend who had expressed their understanding of salvation being that they had to do good things. We don't do good things to be saved. We do good things because we are saved. Our good works can never save us because in order for that to happen, we would have to be absolutely perfect. The Bible says there's none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But to do good, turn from evil. Show that you are sincere in your desire to follow God, to live for Christ. Make that decision. Make that choice to turn from evil and to do good. You see, it's not enough just to turn away from sin. We must also begin and continue to do good. Back to that phrase, on the contrary. Do good. Seek peace and pursue it. I want you to notice two words here. Seek and pursue. The object is peace, but notice that it takes effort. Peace doesn't just float in on a cloud, just like we talked about at the beginning. Peace doesn't just float in on a cloud. You've got to be seeking it. You've got to be looking for it. And when you see it, you've got to run after it. 1 Timothy 2.22 Flee from youthful lusts, but pursue, pursue, run after. Run away from youthful lusts. And by the way, older people can have youthful lusts too. You ever heard the term dirty old man? So this isn't just for the youth. The youth have to flee the lust, but the old guys don't. No. Flee youthful lust no matter what your age is. Run from them. Pursue righteousness. Run after it. Faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Boy, there's another little nugget in there. You want to hang out with people, those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. You see, you tend to be like who you hang around with, right? You want to hang around with other people who are pursuing peace, right? Running after it. Seek peace, seeking peace and pursuing it. Those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Peace is not just the absence of conflict. It's freedom from disagreement or quarrels. It goes back to harmony. Concord. Matthew 5, 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. I know, and to be gender accurate in this day and age, daughters too. How many of you here today want to be called a son of God? 
daughter of God, then you need to be a peacemaker. James 3.18, Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace, reaping and sowing. Again, sowing and reaping. The inheritance, the blessing, the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Verse 12, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and His ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. This is Psalm 34, 15 and 16. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. And that means in a positive sense, He's watching out for you much more than Bill O'Reilly ever could. In fact, Bill O'Reilly can't do it anymore. They took him off. Peter makes it clear that to have God's favor in our lives, the eyes of the Lord. Notice the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His face is against those who do evil. In order to have God's favor in our lives, we must actively pursue a harmonious relationship with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We must rise above the vengeful attitude of the world and be nice to those who are not nice to us. As servants of the Prince of Peace, we're to pursue, and by the way, overtake. Not only are we to pursue it, we're to overtake it, we're to catch it, we're to lay hold of it. Peace. Hebrews 12.14, pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Wow. Hello. That ought to get our attention. Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. The only way you can ever achieve a holiness that will put you in right standing with God is to be washed in the blood of the Lamb the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses us from all sin and He will clothe you in His robes of righteousness. That's your only hope. We all need Jesus. Desperately. He is our hope. Romans twelve eighteen. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. There's going to be times when no matter what you do, Someone doesn't want to have peace. There's going to be times, you know, as much as is possible. Again, that doesn't mean then you're, you're allowed to go ahead and return evil for evil or insult for insult. But again, you just have to back away and let God deal with them. Let God work on them. You pray for them. I've said this before. I'll say it again here today. But sometimes there are some people you have to love at a distance. You could be the world's greatest dog lover, but you may not want to stick your hand through the fence when your neighbor has got a vicious Rottweiler on the other side. You can stand back. Nice doggy. You're so pretty. I love Rottweilers. But you don't stick your hand through the fence, right? If it is possible, as much as depends on you, God puts the burden on you to do your part. Live peaceably with all men. You know, I frequently hear Christians say they're frustrated and confused. They don't understand what God wants them to do or to be. There's no meaning or purpose in their lives, which is a little unbelievable considering who God is and what He's done. But I would say there's a good indicator that they're not in the Word. Peter lays it all out for us right here. Here's what we're all about. Love, sympathy, compassion, humility, blessing, peace, who does that remind you of, by the way? Anybody? 
Who does that remind you of? Jesus. And guess what? Aren't we supposed to be like Him? He's our role model. He's our mentor. He's our friend. Have you ever heard... Oh boy, I hate to bring this up today. after today. <laughs> Have you ever heard a band, <laughs> orchestra, a musical group that was out of tune? Off pitch? Perhaps not even on the same page of music? Yes, you have. I know you have. Well, it can be very painful, including for the one who's participating in it. And it doesn't really inspire you to love life and have a good day. <laughs> when things are off, off pitch, out of tune, cacophony. You ever heard an orchestra when they're all tuning up? <laughs> Or like in the brass, they're trying, or the violins, they're tuning. Harmony is much better. I like to look at it this way. God's Word is the symphony. You know, you write out that symphony. God Himself is the conductor. And we're all the musicians and the vocalists in His orchestra. Harmony is a beautiful thing. And I think it's high time we stop tooting our own horns started playing his song, His Way, together. Let's stand. Let's stand. Father, we do thank you that you've written a beautiful symphony for us in your word. And Lord, you are the master conductor. You're the conductor of the universe. Lord, we're just blessed and privileged and thankful to be a part of the orchestra. But Lord, we recognize that there's a tremendous need for us to be in harmony with one another, to be on the same page, to be each playing our part and not conflicting with the parts that others are to play. Help us, God. Help us to cultivate and evoke these qualities in our lives that we've talked about today, these qualities that make up that idea, that characteristic of harmony, being harmonious, seeking after peace, loving one another, not just in agape, but also just in a brotherly way. Warm, tender feelings of affection, being sympathetic, being compassionate, being humble. Lord, we know that you can do these things in us if we will but yield our lives over to you and allow you to work in us. And your word tells us that you who have begun a good work in us will complete it unto the day of Christ Jesus. So you are faithful. Father, help us to be faithful as well. And we do give you permission to continue to do that work in us of perfecting us, making us more and more like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Father, we do pray for anyone here today that needs salvation, deliverance, the infilling of the Holy Spirit, whatever it might be, healing, that you'd pour out your Spirit on all those who would come seeking you, seeking help today. Lord, your Word is full of promises for those that seek you, that call out to you, who cry out to you. You are faithful and you will not turn a deaf ear or a blind eye. So we ask you just to minister in the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, now in Jesus' name. Amen.